Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about a culture of generosity. Well, Scott, I got to say it's good to be back chatting with you here today. And I am especially interested and excited about our conversation on generosity today. Got to just show you my cards. This is honestly my favorite chapter in your Pastor Paul book. Okay. Well, Chaz, here's the thing is that churches uh, are cultures and churches need to take the culture of the church itself more seriously. Mm -hmm. And they need to realize that a culture in a church in many ways um, sets the boundaries and marks the norms for what that church or group of people uh, thinks is good. Mm -hmm. So um, we need, we need to figure out in our own church cultures, if what we, let's say you're a pastor and you're church, like you, you and Chelsea mm-hmm. are planning a church. Mm-hmm. You want to think about what really is important. And you want to see if that, what, if what you think is really important is actually coming through to become a part of the culture of your group. Yeah. And of course you're planning a church. So you're at the very, very beginning and it's, it's not yet forming it into a culture like that yet, but it will because it requires uh, integration of all the people involved and not all the people are involved in your church plant and culture mm-hmm. yet. But mm-hmm. one of the characteristics that I see the Apostle Paul thinking to be important as a cultural value, a cultural norm, a boundary, as it were, is generosity. And the Apostle Paul talks about generosity in so many ways. And what's, what is very interesting to me is the number of people who over the years, and I've heard this most of my life, and I think, or my academic life, I think I picked it up um, in a book when I was reading in seminary by Ron, Ronald Sider called a Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And I think what I picked it up is in studying that book, hearing people talk about that book, and then being involved with some radical Anabaptists at that time, who even made statements like this, that, the, that Jesus was for the poor. Jesus was totally into, let's say, distribution, redistribution, like John the Baptist. Uh, he was into sharing with one another at a more radical level. And the Apostle Paul seems to have dropped this concern. Now, of course, we know about Acts 2, the end of Acts 2, the end of Acts 4, where the early churches were together, they were in unity. Um, I translate one of those expressions, there was relational unity um, in, in those churches, but those weren't yet Pauline churches. So we have to get into the Pauline churches to see if they were living the way uh, the Acts church community in Acts 2 and Acts 4 were living. And some people have argued over the years that this is not the case. Well, one of the things that happened to me in studying uh, for this book, but also prior to that in studying uh, the teachings of the Apostle Paul on generosity uh, because of the 
centrality of grace and giving and gift in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is um, an interest in the collection for the saints for Paul. Now, there are some very interesting conversations and lots of literature on this, but many, many, many years ago, I wrote an article in the Dictionary of Paul and his letters on the collection for the saints. And at the time, I was just uh, honored to be invited to write on something like that. And I studied it really hard and I did my best. Um, But it was nothing that I taught because for many, many years, I was reading Paul, but I wasn't teaching Paul. So some of these themes didn't become very prominent in my thinking. But in that period, um, at the end of that period, as I began to teach, especially at Northern, I began to focus on this a little bit more. And that is the collection for the saints. And one of the more interesting features of his collection uh, for the saints is whether Paul uh, had a collection that was going for two or three decades or whether there was an early collection that we see in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul was urged to remember the poor and then whether Paul picked that up later in his ministry. And I think uh, for some odd reason, most of the time I've believed that this was like a two or three decade um, ministry of Paul of raising funds for the saints in Jerusalem, the poor saints in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'm open to being persuaded that that's not the case. And I don't think it's it's a huge issue. Uh, but it it is the case that Paul felt an obligation Number one, for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And number two, Paul felt an obligation to teach his churches that those who had the wherewithal for generosity were to become giving agents, agents of generosity for others who were poor. And Paul expected them to take care of ministers and even to support him once they got the church established. There's that's another discussion. But so uh, I wanted to open it up by just saying that, that I think that there's a little bit of an issue about the uh, collection for the saints and whether it was a two or three decade process. But, but what is interesting is if, if we do a maximal list of the churches that seem to have supported the Pauline collection for the Jerusalem saints, these are the uh, areas that clearly were involved. The, the Galatian churches, Derby, Lystra, Berea, Thessalonica, Macedonia, Philippi, Corinth, probably Mysia and Ephesus, Troas. We also wonder, I think, in Paul in coming to Jerusalem, if he didn't, every place he stopped, Tyre, Ptolemais, Cyprus, Caesarea, and even maybe drew some money out of Rome through his letter. If this is the case, then Paul expected all of his churches to be engaged in supporting the poor saints Mm -hmm. of Jerusalem. So the big 
the big point with a lot of this is we can at least come away saying that is an incorrect understanding to try to suggest that it was Jesus who cared for the poor and it's not really a concern for Paul. What you're saying from the, uh, largely from the evidence from the collection is that no Paul obviously cared for the poor and his collections are evidence to say that. Would that be fair? Yes, that, that's fair. That's the point I'm making is that, uh, and you made it a lot briefer than I did. Uh, it's, it is the case that if Paul is concerned for two or three decades with the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, you could never say that Paul didn't care about the poor. Furthermore, um, uh, Bruce Longenecker in his wonderful book about this called Remember the Poor mm-hmm. argues that the expression uh, doing good um, means financial and material generosity for others, especially for the saints, Christians, believers, church people, but also for uh, anybody who is in need. That's one of the big emphases of Bruce Longenecker. And I think by and large, he's right, though I don't think the early Christians were wealthy enough to be given mm-hmm. a whole lot of money in mm-hmm. the public sector. But... Um, it, it, it is a big mistake to think that Paul didn't carry on the ministry of Jesus toward the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the churches, if, you have, if you've ever studied people like Longenecker and some of the people who've studied the demographic makeup of early Christians, most uh, scholars think most Christians, a vast majority, were very poor and dependent, uh, sort of like hand-to-mouth type people mm-hmm. most of the time. If that's the case, then all these Christians, you could say, were poor and were in need of support at times, and especially as they became believers and could have been ostracized or even persecuted and suffered and um, become underemployed or unemployed, uh, I would say that it is an absolute, uh, I, I would say it's very strong conclusion that Paul was a strong supporter of Christians supporting the poor. Now listen, listen to the words that the Apostle Paul uses for the collection, because it's too easy, frankly, always to say this is about the collection for the saints when Paul actually uses other terms. Um, I've, I've listed six in, my, in the book, in the chapter on generosity. He calls it a collection. He calls it a grace or a gift. He calls it a blessing. He calls it a liturgy, which would be a ministry or even an act of worship. Um, He calls it a service, and that's his strongest or most common term. And he calls it fellowship. Now, just think about this, Chaz, is that if we were to preach a series of sermons on generosity, and we used those terms as a, let's say, a, a, a topic mm-hmm. for each sermon, a collection, its gift, giving is a blessing, giving is a liturgy, giving is a service, giving is fellowship. Um, we changed the dynamic from, say, uh, words like stewardship, which is sort of about managing money, mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a very spiritual concept. Um, and we sometimes talk about it as tithing. 
Paul doesn't use that term. Jesus doesn't use that term, forgiving. So I, I would say that we, we could reframe what we mean by economic discipleship mm-hmm. by doing a series on, on terms like that. So I'm, I'm convinced that uh, there's a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul about generosity. Oh, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think it's something in churches in relationship disciple in, in relationship to discipleship is one of the things that oftentimes we're pretty scared to talk about. I mean, you even talk early in the chapter, I believe, about how there's even disagreements and discussions about should pastors know who their largest givers are? Should pastors know the amount that people give um, based on even capacity sometimes? And I think so much of this is, is a challenge in part with our society and all of that, but it is so important for discipleship because of the connection to generosity and our finances to how we're living out the kingdom life that Jesus is inviting us into in him, in the church. And, um, it's just an important connection to make. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I was talking to our, our seminary president who, uh, when I talked to him about this, he hadn't been at the seminary all that long. It was like five years ago, four years ago. I'm not sure how long he's been there, but about that time. I think it was in his first uh, summer. Um, Bill uh, came into my D-Min class when we were talking about this topic. And someone asked him, do you think pastors should know how much people are giving? And in the room, there were a couple students who had already expressed very confidently or even strongly that no, Mm -hmm. pastors should never know. It will spoil their attitude toward those Mm -hmm. people. And it will make them favor people who are giving more. And there's probably some wisdom in that. Whereas others were, I would say the vast, there were a couple who thought you should, but the vast majority were in a situation like we don't know. And it's probably good. We don't know, but I have never thought about it that much. Well, Bill said that uh, he had learned in seminary and he had learned later that if if uh, a pastor's responsibility is to nurture people into discipleship, and if a big part of our life is economic or financial or about mm-hmm. money, it is irresponsible pastoral relationship to people with whom we are discipling not to talk about money and not to bring the use of money, generosity, etc., into the discussion of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I think, in general, he's right. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that, that, that pastors have a responsibility to nurture economic discipleship, financial discipleship. Uh, whether they need to know who's given how right. much it is maybe not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're actually discipling someone, and look, uh, there are churches that are so big that the pastor doesn't hardly know a person in the church. Uh, but uh, if you're discipling someone and you have that kind of relationship with them and you're mentoring them and guiding them and helping them grow in their Christian faith, then knowing how much they give could be a part of the vulnerability of discipleship. Um, pushing people once you know that is is very dangerous ground 
and you're probably just going to lose people. But uh, I, I agree that in general, we have a responsibility to teach uh, those people we disciple and pastor about the significance and the importance of financial discipleship. Yeah, and I think the unique challenge in this area is most people don't see themselves as greedy people. If we want to use the opposite of, of generosity, um, I heard a teaching recently from Tim Keller where he kind of un- unpacked this, that he said, I had as a pastor, people come and confess and confide in me all sorts of different sins, you know, from adultery to, uh, you know, lying to whatever. But, but we, as human beings, I think anybody, everybody could fall into this camp is most of us generally think I'm a pretty generous person. And so it kind of makes it difficult to even begin a conversation to, to realize, Oh man, what even is generosity? Like, what is, what does that look like? Like what, um, how is that connected to, to discipleship? Because it's not something that's really something blaringly in our face that we're doing something wrong with. I've heard, I think I heard that it may have been about, I think it was Tim Keller that no one had ever confessed to him that they were greedy. Mm -hmm. Is that what you, what you heard him say? Yeah, that was the same teaching. Yeah. And, uh, I found that fascinating Mm -hmm. and I find it fascinating that so many, and he's pastor of an evangelical church Mm -hmm. in New York city where he was, um, uh, I find it interesting because of the numbers that I've seen from people like Ron Sider over the years, the percentage of income that people are actually, uh, let's say, using as a, a giving amount. And it's pretty low. Uh, it's pretty low. I mean, I think it's, I think it's 2%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would demonstrate, I would say if you're giving 2% of your income, you're not really generous. Mm-hmm. But here, here's what I would say is I think a measure of generosity is how you respond when you see people who are in need. Whether it's in your family, mm-hmm. whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your church, and I would say especially in your church, whether it's in people connected to ministries that you are involved with, how do you respond? Mm-hmm. Do you say, oh, they should they should go to work? Yeah. Or do you say, what What can I do to help? I think that is a mark of generosity. The people that I know who are generous mm-hmm. are people who, who respond the right way when they see people in need. You know, some people who are pretty poor are extraordinarily generous. This is the story of the widow's right. might in the Gospel of Mark. Um because when they see people in need, they give. Whereas there are other people who are very wealthy, who, when they see people who are in need, they sort of point their fingers mm-hmm. at them and say, you know, you, you should have done this, you should have done that. If you, and there are fools who don't manage their money well and who suffer as a consequence. And that's a part of the discipline of life. But by and large, I think it's how we respond to the people that we see in need. And, and Chaz, one of the interesting things, when I've talked about generosity with pastors over the years, uh, one of the things that I have heard over and over, and this 
this always sort of cuts against what I'm trying to say when I'm talking about generosity is that they are dealing with so many people in their churches who have no discipline with their finances. Yeah. They say generosity has become very difficult for many people because they don't know how not to use a credit card or to avoid serious levels of debt. So pastors often have said to me, you know, Scott, I'm glad you're talking about generosity and that's wonderful and I believe in that. But what we really need more often is, uh, is some courses on wise economics. And uh, I've listened to this enough over the years to say, I think we should, uh, we should start talking about that as well. But the chapters on generosity, and I, I wanted to mention, Chaz, in this, in this themes of generosity, um, some of the themes that I think come up when Paul talks about this massive collection or fellowship, financial fellowship uh, of generosity that Paul advocated for to be formed in church cultures so that they became generous people. And that is Paul believed that giving to others formed unity. Uh, it forms a unity between Christians. He also saw uh, giving as an act of worship. Mm -hmm. He thought it should take place in connection with the weekly church service. Paul uses a term in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 to 14, that uh, he wanted there to be equality. And um, I spend quite a bit of time uh, wrestling with this term because it, it seemed so obvious what it means. And uh, Murray Harris once said that, uh, uh, that, or I learned this from him, is that when we are fighting about whether the word isotetes uh, or equality means equality or fair balance or a fair share, which is the standard translations in English uh, versions, uh, we may, uh, I say that we're driving our cart into the ditch when we're talking like this. The issue is that there's to be mutual material availability and accountability to one another and to each other. That's what Paul is all about. Uh, at worship, unity, yes, those are sort of just grandiose ideas. But how do we respond when people have, uh, have needs? I remember at one point uh, we, were, we had bought a new car. We had an extra car. Uh, Chris needs a car and I need a car. So we've always had two cars. We always have tried to pay cash for our cars. We have avoided loans. For a long, I mean, her, almost all our marriage, we've never had a loan on a car, um, maybe just the first car. But we thought at that point that it would have been a good idea to give that the extra car away to to some people who who probably couldn't afford to have another yeah. car and needed one. So I think we can uh, I think we can practice generosity in a variety of ways, and um, so I I think that it is this sort of this mutual material availability and accountability that uh, is the core of the culture that Paul is seeking to uh, 
create and nurture in his church. Well, I think that really enforces the metaphor of the body that Paul uses so often. I mean, if you had one part of your body that was in need and another part of the body that had uh, excess, then it would only make sense for the body to redistribute whatever it needed to, um, to, yeah. to care in that way. And I think when you go back and talk about things like culture and each one of those, unity, worship, equality, those values that are implicit with having a Christoform economic in your church, man, that is just as generosity can be a difficult thing to talk about. It's also enormously contagious when it's done well. And when you're able to engage, like for us, as you were talking earlier with what we're with our church plant, kind of getting to be the architects and it and shape it and see just leaning into what God's doing. And, you know, one of those things that we really feel God drawing us to is the foster care community. And just when you talk about somebody who is in need and is there a biblical command. I mean, James couldn't be clearer, take care of widows and orphans and and where the heart of God is and and just pulling apart the need and saying, okay, now how how should we respond to this? And um and and I think when you get the ball rolling with that, um, in the wealthy time in history that we live in, when we help people figure out their finances to have the motivation to say, I actually have a great opportunity to be able to share an enormous amount, to be generous as God has been generous to me. Um, I just think the kingdom gets to uh, to really expand and, and just uh, get to be experienced in some very exciting ways. Um, but it takes a culture to do that, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Well, um, we're about out of time here today, Scott. Do you have anything on a culture of generosity that you want to wrap our time together up with and um, maybe get us ready for our next conversation that we have? Yeah, I would say uh, that we would do well to avoid the extremes of really wealthy people who can give away 90% of their money or... um, pretty wealthy people who are generous and talk about ordinary ways of generosity uh, that ordinary Christians can participate in that can sort of expand, uh, let's say, their world of materiality and and possessions and money um, in ways that can expand uh, the, the sense of the body of Christ and the generosity that should be, should be marking Christians. And um, I would I would say uh, leaders need to be examples in mm-hmm. this, and they need to avoid telling people how much money they give. Yeah, that's that's fair, and that's good. So, um, well, wow! I, I got to say, the conversation did not disappoint. Like I said, this is was my favorite chapter in the book, and uh, I want to encourage your listeners if you haven't had a chance to grab it, um, grab it. We'll, as always, include the links to the in the show notes of of where to do that. But thank you for joining us, um, and and hopefully this has been helpful as you kick around what does it look like for the kingdom to take root in your environment because generosity is such a staple to the kingdom. So thanks again for joining us. We look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 